We'll turn. Are we good? All right. There we go. I think we're okay. Okay. So turn your Bibles to Acts 2. Uh, we are continuing our, our study of the early church uh, as we take a, a break from Revelation. Um, and the, the, the goal of this sermon series, or what, I, what I'm trying to do here, is to look at the early church and see why we here at CBC do church the way we do church. Um, and I think it can get very easy to simply get used to it, right, that, that we come here at 1030, uh, that, um, you know, we, we sing and there's a sermon and we hang out afterwards. Uh, but the, the reason why we do that uh, is because it is, uh, we're, we're, we're sourcing our service, we're ordering our service according to the priorities of Scripture uh, in, in, uh, in agreement with the priority of the early church. Um, and we saw last week that this early church first started on Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit came, the church was born, and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the apostles began to spread God's word. And I mentioned last week also that this happened, this, uh, this incredible explosion of the church happened in a 30-year period, and he asked, why? Well, last week we saw that it was because they were spirit-filled. Right? The Holy Spirit came and empowered them to, to preach the gospel. And today, we're going to look at the, um, the, the other reason why they grew so quickly is because it was centered on the Word of God. Okay? So it's spirit-filled from what we saw last week, and now this week we're going to see that it is centered on the word of God. And we're going to study that as we look at Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. It is the first sermon of the church. So we are going to be diving into that. And uh, as I was studying for this, uh, you know, I initially planned out, you know, what we're going to be covering, cover Acts 2. I quickly realized that Acts, this Peter's sermon is quite dense. It has a lot of information there. Um, so we are um, going to be going through it with a focus on what, what does, what does exp expository preaching look like? What does it look like when the Word of God is, is the center of a sermon? Um, but we'll, we'll, be, we'll be flying through it fairly quickly, so I'm just going to give you guys a heads up of, of how quickly we're going to be going through the sermon, through Peter's sermon. Um, my son loves Legos. He loves building them. He loves tearing, tearing them down, building them up again. Uh, when he gets a new Lego set, he, the first thing he does is, he, well, he asks me to open the box, and he wants me to open it in a way where it creates a workspace for him. So he could dump the Legos there and, and build it up uh, and follow the instructions. Uh, now, if it's, a, if it's a Star Wars Lego set, Calvin's not allowed to do that on his own. Uh, he, he must have his dad's help. Um, so we, we work through those together, and we look at the instruction booklet, booklet and we start building. Um, so even with my expertise in Lego building, we inevitably run into trouble. There will be um, some pieces that don't quite fit, that the, the spaceship or whatever it is we're building doesn't quite look like what the picture says it should look like, um, and, and we have to go back. 
Uh, and that is probably the most frustrating thing about Legos is if you, if you miss the orientation of a Lego piece, everything's thrown off. Uh, so you have to be <laughs> extra careful. Uh, you have to look at the instructions carefully. Uh, you cannot skip too many steps. Uh, and, and you just gotta go it slow. Um, those are my tips for, for Lego building, in case you're taking notes there. Um, so we weren't, we weren't careful when we were looking at the picture. So it's, it, I mean, it's kind of a silly moment. It's a good learning moment for, for Calvin, and, and I guess for me, because it could, it could be quite upsetting. Um, but, but the careful attention required to those Lego instructions reminds me of, of the careful attention we need to be given to God's word. Um, we need to be given to the preaching of God's word. What we have in our hands right now, what you guys have in your laps, is the word of God. It has everything that we need for life and godliness. And what I, I see these days, um, in, the, well, in the last few years, uh, is that the word of God in other churches begins to take a second seat, right? It begins to take, uh, sit in the, what's that phrase? Sit in the second row. It, it's not as important. Um, and when we see that, when we start to see that, it's kind of like those Lego sets. It, the church starts to look different. And, we, and I, I said the same thing last week with spirit-filled. When, when the church is no longer seeking the spirit, this church starts to look different, different than what, what God desires the church to look like. And so what we see in the first mo moments of the church is not just spirit-filled, but they are, uh, they are giving careful attention to God's word. They're carefully teaching it, proclaiming it. And we see the Spirit, we see the Spirit of God using the words of God to convict people of sin and to turn them to Christ and to add the church. I mean, at the end of this day, what we're studying in Acts 2, 3,000 people are added to the church. And it is because it is the Spirit of God at work and it is the preaching of the Word of God. So as we study our, the first sermon of the church this morning, uh, we will see a, a clear example of expository preaching and we'll be reminded of why we preach God's word here at CBC. Why do we have our Bibles open right now? Uh, but we'll also be, I hope that you will be encouraged in the amazing power of God's word as it's faithfully preached and is used to, uh, as the Spirit uses to save the lost. And so we're going to break down Peter's sermon in four themes here. So um, the first theme is a promised spirit. We'll look at that verses 14 through 21. So the promised spirit. Then we look at the risen Messiah, verses 22 through 32. Now we'll repeat these as we go. The exalted Lord, verses 33 to 36. And the broken sinners, 37 through 41. So the promised spirit, the risen Messiah, the exalted Lord, and the broken sinners. And my hope as we go through these, as we study Peter's sermon, is that your confidence in the power of the word of God will be revived. That when you share the gospel, when you share a Bible verse with, with an unbeliever, with a coworker, that you are trusting in that, in that you're giving them the words of life. Paul says in Romans 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of, of salvation, power, um, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is what we are looking at today, the power of God for salvation. And I see a common theme from last week's sermon. As I was saying this and writing this, there's a common theme from last week's sermon. Um, 
and, and, and today's sermon, and that's that the church's growth and the success in evangelism doesn't ultimately rest on us. Just like being spirit-filled, that requires the spirit working through us, and the word of God is power onto itself. It's, it's the word of God which the spirit works through to convict others and bring them to, to salvation. We, ha- we have to be faithful to proclaim it. Oh, I do want to say that. We have to be faithful to proclaim it. But we ourselves cannot bring about change in somebody else. But when we preach the gospel of Christ, given to us by the scriptures, and used by the Holy Spirit, we see those people change. And we praise the Lord for that. So that's what we're going to be seeing in today's, in today's uh, reading as we, uh, as we look at Peter's sermon. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Acts 2. We're going to start reading from verse 14. And I, I'm just going to devote this time to reading the sermon. We're going to uh, go through verse 41. Uh, so it's a, a chunk of reading, uh, but I wanted to read the sermon in, uh, in text. So let's go to verse 14 here. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken, was this what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour, out, or pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my, uh, uh, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and vapor uh, and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name, on the, name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
For it is not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself. Oh, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, we read this, this passage and Lord, we just see you at work. Using the, the Apostle Peter as your instrument, using the, the words of your scriptures to convict and bring them to salvation. And Father, I just pray now as we dive in, as we look at this sermon, that you would be at work in our hearts again. That you would convict us of sins that need to be confessed. That you would call those to yourself who do not know you. And Lord, that you would encourage us with the, with the, the power available to us in the Spirit through your word. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we studied verses 1 through 13. And, uh, uh, and I just want to summarize there that that, that was the passage that the, the apostles received the Holy Spirit. Remember that they were instructed to wait in Jeru Jerusalem by Jesus himself. And they waited there about 10 days until the, the festival uh, of the weeks, also known as Pentecost. And at that point, the city was full of Jews from all over the, the, the region. Right? You have Jews from Egypt, from up in Rome, uh, from down in North Africa. So you have these Jews coming and flooding Jerusalem. And it was at that point that God sovereignly chose to pour the Holy Spirit upon his apostles. And what happens immediately after that? They start to speak in tongues, right? They start to speak in these actual languages that these people could hear. Uh, and it was an amazing one-time event that demonstrated a new working of God in his people. So, of course, these people here, the, the people who flooded Jerusalem, who came in for this festival, um, we read that they're, in, in other words, they were dumbfounded, right? They didn't know what to make of it. The fact that we see uh, verse four in, in verse 12 is that they continued in amazement and were great, great, uh, and great perplexity. They said, what does this mean? And then verse 13, but others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. So this is what launches Peter into his sermon. Like people are looking at this. People are seeing the work of the Spirit, and either they want to know what it is, or, or they're just dismissing it uh, as drunkenness. So Peter hears this and responds. And here it brings us to, to the first theme of his, of his sermon, the promised Spirit. So in verse 14, he stands up. He stands up with the 11. He's kind of leading this address here. Uh, and when we look at verse 14, it says that he raised his voice and declared to them. 
kind of an in interesting note in the Greek here. When we look at the word for declared, it's the same verb used in verse 4. You can flip over to verse 4. In verse 4 where it says, and as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So that's the same verb there. The, the, it it kind of points back to this is the Spirit's doing. The Spirit is at work within Peter here. And a Spirit-filled Peter then turns to the crowd and preaches. And he says this, Men of Judah and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Uh, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter's saying, come on, guys, this, this is 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. Uh, we're not drunk. The fact you know, that all of us would be drunk and you know, so early is one thing. So that's not what's going on. Uh, now, I, I kind of find it interesting that, that Peter didn't say, like, you guys are wrong, we're leaving, right? Or he didn't get quit so quickly hear the, the, per, I don't know, the um, outlandish, outlandish um, uh, accusation that they're full of sweet wine and say, okay, I'm, I'm done with you. Rather, he talks to them and is convincing them of what is happening, what God is doing. And I think that itself is, is, a, is a work of the Spirit. Where the, the Spirit was given to the apostles to do the mission that Jesus sent them. Right? Uh, Jesus said to them that just as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends the apostles. And so Peter here is on mission. Here's an opportunity for the gospel. And he doesn't just throw it away. He doesn't just get upset. He takes this opportunity to preach the gospel. And I think it's a, it's a great reminder for us. When we look at these, these Jews, or when we look at someone approaching you, we have an option there to choose whether to share the gospel or to be offended ourselves and turn away. We have a greater mission here than our pride. Right? Our mission is to proclaim the gospel to the lost, and this is exactly what Peter does. So Peter, what did he do? He goes to the scriptures. And we see this over and over again through the book of Acts. Uh, he's, uh, the, the, the apostles in Acts are constantly standing on the authority of Scripture to explain what God is doing. And the power of the Holy Spirit is seen here as they proclaim the Word of God. Um, and I said this before, it's no wonder that you see such growth. It is the Spirit of God working through the preaching of the Word of God. It's a pattern in Acts. The apostles go to the Scriptures over and over again, and and it's not just a pattern in Acts, but if you look in the, in the epistles, it's a mandate to the churches. Um, just a couple of verses that um, you could write down. You don't have to turn there. Uh, but 1 Timothy chapter 4. All right, when we go to 1 Timothy, Paul is giving pastoral instructions to, to Timothy, who's, who's leading the, uh, the Ephesian church. And he gives this specific instruction. So this is um, uh, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, until I come, give Give, give attention to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Uh, and then also I want to uh, point out 2 Timothy 4.2. So 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul charges Timothy to preach the wor word, to be ready in season and out season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So when we look at Acts, it's one thing that it is a pattern here. And we're going to greatly benefit from seeing um, Peter's example of preaching. 
But when we look at the epistles, and this is a, 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 a command, a mandate for the church to do, we better listen up and, and, and do that. If you notice this morning, I'm sure you guys notice because we do every every Sunday, there is a point in our service where we opened up God's word and read it. Right, Adonis came up here and opened up God's word. This was the give the, the giving of uh, of attention to the public reading of Scripture. And then right now we have the Scriptures open, right, teaching the Scriptures. When we get together on a Sunday, we know that there is nothing more profitable than to open God's word. And as much as, I mean, we enjoy being with each other, we enjoy talking to each other. Um, as, much as, we, as much as we do that, it would be a shallow gathering if it wasn't centered around God's word. If we were not exhorting each other through God's word, if we weren't singing to each other in hymns and songs and spiritual songs, right? We, we need to be, uh, our service needs to be centered around God's word. And so we read God's word together today. We have the, the scriptures open together today as we gather as a church. And I'll also say this. Whenever anyone's in the pulpit here, the sermon is always going to be grounded in the scriptures. Uh, in other words, what, what we don't want to see happen here at CBC is someone comes up here reads a passage and uses that as a launch pad to talk about whatever soapbox they want to get on. Uh, we preach this, what the scriptures teach. And unfortunately, I have seen this. Um, in seminary, I had, to, um, I had to research different churches, uh, look at different aspects of the church, and one of them was preaching. And there was this church in Hollywood that the, the sermon was on Luke, Luke 4, or Luke 4.18. Um, and so I said, okay, Let's see what, what the preacher had to say. Uh, I watched the sermon. There was a solid 20 minutes of just movie. Of just, just playing a movie. I, f I forgot which movie it was. Maybe I, I, I didn't even know what it was. But it was just playing a, a film. And then after that, there was a pop song that played, and they analyzed the lyrics. Those people are... are, are, are missing out on the power of God's word. God's revelation there, that what we have in for us was not being preached. And that's a recipe for an anemic church. A church that's going to grow weak in the faith. We have to go back to the scriptures. The scriptures have to be where we, where we constantly meet around and, sh and, and encourage one another with. So we don't, we don't see what I... That, that description, we don't see that in Acts, right? The church in Acts is not anemic. The church in Acts is vibrant. It's growing. We're going to see that next week. The gospel is going forth. And, and yes, they are spirit-filled. That's, that's one part of it. But the, being spirit-filled, there is the expository preaching of God's word. So that's what Peter does here. We're looking at Peter's first sermon. And he goes to the word. And this is verse, uh, in, in verse 17. He goes to, or verse 16. He goes to Joel. He says, but this is what was spoken of through, uh, uh, through the prophet Joel. So he doesn't say, and this is what I think is happening. He goes to the authority of God's word. And this is what was spoken, spoken of through the prophet Joel. And he says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. 
So he reads that, and he immediately makes a connection to the last days. And these are the last days, if you, if you look through the, the rest of that verse he, he mentions, these are the last days that come before the, the day of the Lord. And so what Peter is saying there is that we are in the last days. The Spirit has come, has come forth, entering us into this last era, uh, or what we call the last days before the return of the Lord, before the second coming of Christ. Now, there are a lot of things in this prophecy that hasn't happened yet. Okay, so, for one, the Spirit of God is not yet on all mankind. Right, right, right now, it's, it's on these apostles. Uh, there isn't wonders in the sky or, or blood, fire, and vapor. Um, the sun is not, hasn't been turned to darkness. The moon has not, hasn't been turned to blood. So there's a few things here that hasn't happened yet. So what that's telling us is that Peter is using this passage to show us that the last days have started, and the rest of this is going to come. It is going to come. The day of the Lord is going to come. Uh, and that's where we're staying in Revelation. Um, Revelation 6, 12 to 17. Let's, let's flip there really quick. We studied this a few weeks back. This is Revelation chapter 6. And we're talking about the seals. And I just want you, I just want to notice, I just want to highlight here the similarity. This is John writing. I, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black. Sounds familiar. A sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Mm. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Let me skip down to verse 16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of God who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? So there are things coming, and these are scary things. If you are not, if you do not have the spirit that, that Peter's talking about here, the day of the Lord is going to come, and it's, it's not going to be pleasant for you. But Peter ends his quotation. He doesn't end it with, the day of the Lord is coming. He ends it with hope. Right, the last part of his quotation is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is still hope here. The day of the Lord has not come yet. The, the people he is preaching to, the Jews there who, who have gathered and, and are hearing this, they can still be saved, which leads into this next theme. Okay, so he gave the promise of the Spirit, kind of giving reasons. This is not drunkenness. This is the Spirit of God at work. And now he goes to the risen Messiah. Okay, so verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. Now, Jesus the Nazarene is a name they would have been familiar with. Uh, if you remember in the Gospels, uh, when Jesus Christ was crucified, when a Savior was crucified, they, they gave a, a, a title, right? a, little, a little, I guess, placard um, tag yeah, on, on the cross. And on the cross, it said, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Right, so this is a, the, the crucifixion was obviously very, very public. So they knew this name. There's no doubt that they also knew that he performed signs and miracles and wonders. I mean, Peter says, you yourself, just as you yourself know. Um, but what they, what they miss 
is that this wonders and miracles and signs, this was God validating and confirming that this was the Messiah. We missed that. And also the, the Jews, what they would have heard then, in addition to hearing Jesus Nazarene, what they would have heard through the Jewish leaders is that the disciples took the body of, of Christ. Right? That's, what they were that's what they were spreading. The, the Jewish leaders were spreading the idea that Jesus didn't, die, uh, didn't rise again, that he was still dead. It's just that the, the disciples took the bodies. So, so then, what does C Peter then say about Jesus here? Well, he, he goes to verse 23. He says, yeah, he died. This man delivered over by the, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, this verse, verse 23, there's so much in this verse that it could really be a sermon on its own. Um, but I also want to pause here for a moment and talk about the, the, how precious that wording is. It was part, part of God's predetermined plan, part of his foreknowledge, that Jesus died on the cross. And I want to say that this was not a, a this is not a passive statement. This is not saying that, that God knew what would happen in the future and said, well, Jesus is going to die. Let me adjust my plan to fit that. No. Jesus, instead of that, Jesus being delivered to death is part of God's plan. God ordained it to happen. And the reason why that's important, the reason why Paul, uh, Peter is saying that here is because he's saying that Jesus' death doesn't disqualify him as a Messiah. He was supposed to die, right? The Jews didn't expect their Messiah to die. They expected the Messiah to, to come and, and inaugurate a, a, a kingdom here on earth. But he, Peter's saying, no, he, was, he needed to die. In fact, that's what secures him as a Messiah. By, by him dying, he saved us, right? He's actually doing the same. He's a Christ Messiah. By dying, he saved us through his death. Now, also, this does not excuse the evil intentions and actions of the Jewish leaders. So I, th I think if you, if you look at verse 23, you say, well, if, if God planned that, could you say that the, the, the Jewish leaders and the Romans and everyone who was involved, could you say that they were not culpable for that? And the answer is no. It does not excuse the evil intentions of the Jewish leaders. Uh, and I think for that, I, I just write down, we don't have time to go, go, go there, but Luke 22, 22 is a great passage to look at because it says, <laughs> like, I, I can't just leave a passage in. All right, Luke 22, 22. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. So this is God's plan. He's going to be betrayed. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. The person who betrays Christ, right, Judas, even though it was part of the plan of God, even though it, it fulfills prophecy, woe to him, because he will still have judgment on his head for that. So what we see here is that the most, going back to Acts, this verse tells us that the most heinous evil act ever committed on the, uh, ever, that will ever be committed, namely the crucifixion of the Son of God, 
first was not outside God's plan, and God will still judge those who are responsible for it. And he used the death of Christ for our ultimate good. And I find great encouragement in this. If God, if God can use the murder of his son to bring about salvation for many, he, of course, can use the evil acts that are committed to us for good as well. The, the pain that we feel, the injustice we see, the, the loss that we, we experience, that we experience, all has a purpose to it. God has placed a light in that darkness. And we may not be able to see it, but, but God will use it for good. We don't always see it, but by faith we trust that God is, doing, is using it for our good and for the good of the saints. That's 23. That's 223. Very powerful passage about God's plan. Okay, so not, that's not the really, I don't want to spend too much time there because Peter, Peter spends two verses on the life and death of Christ, but then nine verses on the resurrection. And this is where, really where he's getting at. So the nine verses here, and this is where I think the crowd really starts to pay attention, right? They, I think they knew everything before that. Um, I mean, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, um, that was, I'm sure, getting their attention. But once he starts talking about the risen Christ, which they thought we were dead, they thought the disciples took him, it starts to get their attention. So he already used the scriptures to show that we've entered the last days, but now he's going to use the scriptures to show that Jesus is alive. So let's go to verse, tw uh, verse 24 as he continues. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So first of all, what an amazing encouragement it is for us uh, who believe in Christ. Verse, verse 24, Jesus Christ defeated death. The power of death has been broken as evidenced by the resurrection. And I just love to pair this with what, was, what Jesus said, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus already knew he was going to break the bonds of, of death. Well, what about Hebrews 2.14? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. What an amazing hope we have because of the resurrection. For a Christian... Death loses its power. Because it was impossible for the, for the strands of sin or strands of death to hold Jesus down, we too are freed from the power of death. Now, Peter used Psalm 16 to support this claim. Uh, they, 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 so the, the, the people listening likely heard that Jesus uh, was taken by his disciples, right? They heard that, that story, that lie that was given to them by the Jewish leaders. Um, but now Peter is saying he was alive. How does he prove this point? Well, he exposits Psalm 16. He breaks it down. This is where we see the careful, exegetical preaching of God's word. He breaks it down 
and looks at critical parts of this text to explain that Jesus is alive. So first he looks at the author of the psalm. So we know David wrote Psalm 16. And David wrote that he will not go to Hades. But then Peter's like, well, guys, let's think about this a second. Right, let's look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. So when we look at the verse, as particularly in verse 27 there, when he's citing Psalm 16, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to under, undergo decay. This can't be talking about David. Instead, the psalm says, that's t uh, the, the Peter says, talking about someone else. And so Peter now looks at, not, not only does he look at the author, but he also looks at the Old Testament context. Look at verse 30. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Let me just stop right there really quick. So that, he, he goes to Psalm 32, which is an allusion to the Davidic covenant. Right? So you can see here, let me just, before we move on a little bit, you can see here that, that Peter is not simply throwing a verse out there and said, I hope this makes you feel good. He's diving into the scriptures. He's unpacking, for, uh, unpacking it for his audience, for the crowd, so that they could understand what God's doing. And so he looks at the Old Testament context. He goes back to the Davidic, to the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant was God promising David that his throne will be established forever, that a descendant of David will rule his throne forever. So Peter being in the spirit, teaching from the word of God, tells us that David knew that, Messi that the Messiah will not remain dead. Right? This is what it says, verse 31. David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So when we look at this explanation, I would say we see the first sermon, uh, expository, expository sermon here, where he is looking at a scripture and unfolding it. Now, preaching the word of God would not be helpful, and it could actually be dangerous if the scriptures were not explained. We don't just read a passage and say, well, look, how does this apply to your life? How do you feel about this passage? We dive into it, we, we unpack it, we look at the context, we look at the historical um, context, the grammatical context. We wanna understand everything about that passage so we could apply it correctly. There needs to be a careful consideration for the historical and biblical context here. Uh, this reminded me of, um, of, of uh, driving and, and Calvin looked at the, the side of the road and He's aware of signs now, so this then makes it interesting. And he's noticed that the speed limit was 55. And um, our car has a very nice display of, it tells you how fast you're going. And so he saw 55 on the sign, he looked at me, and he saw like 70. Um, <laughs> and he's saying, uh, he told me, um, uh, Dad, this is the speed limit's 55, you're going way over. Uh, and I just thought, well, it's a good thing he's not with me on my commutes because this could be, <laughs> could be way more. Um, but the what he, he, he didn't take into account was the context of that 55. 
uh, VZ 55 miles per hour usually has a little sign there on the bottom that's for trucks and trailers or something like that, right? Look for trailers. So I don't, I wasn't balanced at 55. I could go, okay, I could go 55. <laughs> uh, but, but, but Calvin looked at it, he's like, 55, you're not doing it. You gotta change your ways up. Um, but I think that's what happened if, if you take, if you don't take into account the context. If you don't take into account the context of the scripture, you see a scripture like, this must mean this, where God does not mean that at all. So there's careful consideration of the historical biblical context. And the other hallmark here of preaching that we see throughout the sermons in Acts. And we could use, uh, we, we, we do this in the pulpit, we should be doing this in our evangelism, evangelism that it sh- whatever passage we go to, it should always lead us to Christ. Now, what I'm not saying is that that passage is about Christ. Okay, that's a different, uh, that's a different meaning there. But it should always lead us to Christ. Jesus is, after all, our all in all. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It all goes back to Jesus. So we go back to Jesus in our preaching. We go back to Jesus in our evangelism. We go back to Jesus in our private devotions. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he's a great English preacher in the 19th century, my spiritual beard father. Um, he has a nice beard. Uh, he said this, whatever subject I preach, I do not stop until I reach the Savior, the Lord Jesus, for in him are all things. We don't stop until we reach the Savior. And so this is what the apostles did. They preached the gospel, they preached the, the scriptures, but they preached it to get to the Savior. So we do that today. We do that today in our church service. We do it in our small groups. We do it in our private devotions. We dig into scriptures until we see Christ. So Peter explained the promise of the Spirit. He exposited the, the risen of the Messiah, the risen Messiah, and he's going to now look at the exalted Lord. Which brings us to our third theme, the exalted Lord. Now, in the logical flow of this sermon, Peter has already established that Jesus is risen, but now he comes full circle back to the promise of the Spirit, right? Look at verse 33. He says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. Peter is saying, is, is saying that not only is Jesus resurrected, but Jesus is responsible for what you see today. Right? Notice who pours forth the Spirit. In verse 33, he says, um, he has poured forth spirit. The, the, the he there goes back to what he, who he's talking about, that therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, well, who's been exalted to the right hand of God? This is, that's Christ. This verse is saying that, that, that Jesus has the authority that God has, that Jesus is deity, Jesus is God, and the, the listeners will pick that up because go to verse 17. Verse 17, who pours out the Spirit there? It says God. Right? God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit in all my kind. So not only that, but Jesus is also exalted, that God exalted him to the right hand of God. 
Now, when you look at the Holy Spirit, the, the, the uh, Pentecost, when you see the coming of the Holy Spirit, that does more than empower the apostles and the church. Okay, that on its own is amazing. Right? I'm, not, not, I'm not taking away with that. But there's more going on there. It also affirms wh- who Jesus said he was. One of the passages that we saw last time uh, was John 7.39. In John 7.39, Jesus says, that, or he, he doesn't say this, but, but John writes, the Spirit has, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, the Spirit is here now. People see that in the day of Pentecost. Spirit is here. And so it tells the Jewish people that Jesus was a real deal. Right? The Spirit came because Jesus ascended, because Jesus was glorified. Like Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us, God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those on heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we're looking at here is our exalted Savior. This is who we come to worship. Right? We, we do worship the risen Christ, but he is exalted as well. And to drive this point home in, in Peter's sermon, as if you know, the confirmation of the Spirit wasn't enough, Peter hits him with the scripture again. He is not relying on experience here. He's not relying on external evidence. He goes to the scripture. And so we read in verse 34, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, yet David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I think Matthew 22 is a good, we definitely don't have time for this, but Matthew 22 is a good passage to go to where Jesus brings up this passage again and says, if, 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 the, if the Messiah is the son of David, why is David calling him Lord? So we see in this passage, the invitation given by God was not given to David, right? The invitation of sit at my right hand. That was not given to David. That was given to someone greater than David. That was given to Jesus. And now Jesus is in the place of authority because God says, that until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, um, Jesus will have his enemies as a footstool. Now we get to the Peter's conclusion here as we wrap up the, the sermon. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So this risen, this exalted Messiah sent by God, who will make his enemies a footstool, this man, you crucified him. One of my favorite features of Peter's sermon here is that he has been so patient and kind to them. Uh, If you look at the words he used, in verse 29, he calls them brothers. He addresses them in in verse 14 and in verse 22 as men of Judah, men of Israel. He's not demeaning at all. Not saying, you knuckleheads, you missed it. We're not drunk. He doesn't say any of that. He identifies with them and he approaches them like he's one of their own, because he is. I like that because it reminds us that whoever's preaching or whether you're sharing the gospel with somebody, we are nothing but by the grace of God, right? We are simply sinners that God saves. We don't have a, uh, a, 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 a pedestal to be on. 
all we could do is point to Christ and say, this, this Savior, he saved me. And I'm not better than you. So I, I like that Peter does that. But he also, at the same time, he's kind with them, but he's also straight with them. Right? That, that stabbing conclusion, he, he doesn't hold back truth there. Uh, when we share the gospel or when Patrick is up here preaching or when I'm up here preaching, one of the things with, with the gospel, you can't hold back the bad news. If you hold back the bad news, that doesn't make the good news that good. The message of the good news starts with the bad news, right? You have, uh, we say that you have offended the Lord. We all have. Our sin is undeniably before us and must be judged by God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we are all deserving of eternal punishment in hell. We can't escape that reality of our fallenness. And this is what we deserve, right? Apart from Christ, this is what we deserve. And look at the Jews. They kill the Messiah. The Messiah sent to save them. And I think this is what's dawning on the crowd as Peter is speaking, that they really messed up. And this may apply to you as well. Well, we've, we've all messed up, but we have, for those of us in, in Christ, we have grace. But if you're here this morning and you have not placed your trust and hope in Jesus Christ, you are in the same boat as these Jews. You will be judged by the Son. There's no amount of work that can save you. You cannot be good enough to erase your sin against God. You have sinned against the Lord. But there is hope. We're going to end with this point. We have seen Peter's sermon as he, as he discussed the promised spirit. We have seen the risen Messiah and the exalted Lord. Now we see the spirits working in the broken sinners. There's no doubt that the spirit had convicted them. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, stabbing, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? This is the power of the word of God right here. Right, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul, spirit, of joint and marrow, and is the judge, and able to judge the thoughts and intention, uh, intentions of the, uh, of the heart. Do you see that right here in action? That when you proclaim the word of God, the spirit of God takes what comes out of your mouth and throws it into the heart of an unbeliever. Throws it into the heart of us, right? We get convicted and the Lord uses that. When a spirit-filled church preaches the word of God, you can expect this reaction that we see in verse 37. That those whom the spirit draws near begin to ask, what can I do? And if you're asking this, that question this morning, I want you to look. Well, let's all look, but particularly if you're asking this question, look at verse 38 and 40. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified, and he kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The answer to what can I do is to repent. It is to repent. It is to turn away from your sins. Turn away from the sins which you have coveted and turn to God. Repenting means to forsake all efforts of earning your way to heaven and to come to God empty-handed, completely relying on his grace for you. Uh, one author puts it this way for repentance. Repentance is not so much a doing as a depending, 
It is not so much a striving for pardon as a posture of humility. In true repentance, we confess our total reliance on God's mercy. We acknowledge the inadequacy of anything we would offer God to gain his pardon. In true repentance, we rest upon God's grace rather than trying to deserve it. It is not works that can save you. Works can't save you. Forgiveness of sin is only given to those who repent. Now, we do see a connection here with baptism. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the, the time to really dive into it. Uh, but what we see in Acts is that for baptism always follows forgiveness of sins. It is never a means or requirement of forgiveness of sins. And we see that throughout the, the New Testament as well. Forgiveness is always linked to repentance, not baptism. And baptism, I mean, baptism is great. Baptism is a, sim, uh, is a symbol of what God has done for you, a public testimony of what God has done. But the answer here is to repent. And so we see the result of, of God's word, preaching God's word, of the Holy Spirit empowering the apostles. The result in verse 41 is that 3,000 souls are saved. May we see God save souls in our church. That's why I pray. And if you're unsure where you stand with the Lord, if you're uncertain of whether you have this forgiveness, I, I ask you guys, please, please talk to me. Talk to people in this church. We would love to talk to you and, and, and open the scriptures with you. And if you're unsure, you can turn to God now. If you turn to God now, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will forever be joined to Christ and be part of the family of God. And for those who, of you who are believers, what we study here today, you have the same spirit and you have the same word. So if you have the same spirit, you have the same word, what do you do with those? Well, you go. You go, therefore, and make disciples of nations, baptizing them in the name of the, uh, baptizing them in the, name of the Son, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you teach them, teaching the scriptures. And when do you stop? Matthew 28 says, even to the end of the age. This is what we're doing, and you have the Spirit, and you have the Word. So let's proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sermon. We're looking at Peter's sermon and just how, how he, he stood in, in the midst of the eleven to the, and spoke to the crowd your Word. Lord, I, I give you the praise for saving those 3,000, and I pray, Lord, that you would save souls here. That by the proclamation of your word, and through your spirit, you would bring those who do not know you to a saving faith. Lord, give us that boldness, Father. Help us to see those opportunities, not to, not, not to shrug them off, not to delay them. But Father, we would jump at the opportunity to, to share the, the, the life-giving gospel to the lost. Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing, What Can One?